Hello, and welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. And speaking of summer, I hope that you are staying nice and cool this summer. In Oklahoma, it has been absolutely brutal. I mean, like, my face is melting hot. Triple digits every day. You get in your car after work, and it is so hot, I swear I could bake cookies on my seats. It's brutal out there. So stay cool, stay hydrated, stay inside when you can. That's what I'm trying to do. With the exception of my vacation, I did go on vacation to New Orleans and had an absolute blast. Of course, we did a lot of walking around the French Quarter and we did a swamp tour and went out to this it was like a national park that was in the swamp and you walked on this really rickety plank like path that felt like it was going to fall through into the swamp and it was so hot but it was so amazing we had so much fun I got to hold a baby alligator we went on a ghost tour that was really amazing learned a lot of history and some local ghost legends and then the highlight of the trip for me was the death museum it was absolutely amazing i mean i honestly expected just to have some pictures of really popular serial killers and murders and you know, deaths and things with some articles or, you know, just little write-ups about what happened. But no, it was so much more than that. They had artwork by different murderers, including Gacy, which was really cool. They had handwritten letters by different serial killers to different people that they had written while they were in jail. They had articles of clothing that they had worn. They had court documents and just so much information. They also had a lot of death masks in there of famous people, which was really interesting. Some of the more interesting things that I really enjoyed was information on like different traditions and things for child deaths and how they used to honor children who had died and the way that they used to carry out their funerals which was really amazing there was also information on like the evolution of the embalming process and morticians and it was just really great I could have spent the entire day in this museum it was so much fun so I really enjoyed it and I highly recommend that museum if you're in New Orleans I also really enjoyed the uh, voodoo museum that I I thought that was really informative and interesting so the whole trip was amazing I really enjoyed it, getting to get out and go do something. And hopefully I will get to do another trip for, you know, podcast purposes at some point, like I did last year when I went to Roswell, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen. 
But until then, I do have an interesting story for you. This is one that I had actually never heard of. And I was just Googling some interesting facts and murders and came across this one. Uh, what I came across was headlines, actual newspaper headlines for the Wichita Falls Body Snatcher. And so that really, that drew me in because at first I thought this was probably, you know, somebody who was doing some grave robbing and I was interested to know, you know, exactly what they were doing. But no, he's actually a serial killer out of Wichita Falls. And so I have this story for you I put together over Ferion Edward Wardrip, the Wichita Falls body snatcher. So Ferion Edward Wardrip was born March 6, 1959 in Salem, Indiana to George and Diana Wardrip. He had a younger brother, so he was the oldest child. There were only two of them. And I found it really interesting that it was noted in several articles, and I couldn't find anything to dispute this, that there was no record of a history of abuse or neglect in his childhood, which is very common in serial killers. You find this history of abuse and neglect, usually by a parental figure, and that kind of leads to those homicidal tendencies. But Ferion didn't have that in his history. He did not complete high school. He only went to school through the 11th grade. And in 1978, at the age of 19, he joined the National Guards. Honorably discharged from the National Guards. He had served in the National Guards for six years. But he was dishonorably discharged for substance use disorderly conduct and multiple absences without leave or going AWOL. He never deployed to combat. He had stayed in the United States, so it's not like he saw these horrific, awful things. It's not like he was, you know, in a combat situation that had caused this trauma, that had caused this drinking and substance use. He had just started using drugs and alcohol, and it sounds like it got out of control. In 1984, he was discharged from the National Guards, and then in 19, October of 1986, so two years after that, he and Jonna got divorced. So he was only married three years, and he was discharged from the National Guards a year after he got married. In 1983, so the same year that he married Jonna Jackson, he began working at Wichita Falls General Hospital as a janitor. So at this point in 1983, you know, he had been in the National Guards for five years. He seemed to have his shit together. He was married to this woman. They were having kids. He had two children with her. Uh, he was working at this hospital as a janitor, and within a year, he was promoted to an orderly. So he seemed to have been doing really well. And that 1984 seemed to 
I don't know, it'd be a rough year for him because that was when he was discharged from the National Guards and he wasn't able to maintain his employment because of his addiction. And so substance use caused him to lose his job. And then in 1986, his wife files for divorce. And so he loses his family. And as we know, when people who have homicidal tendencies spiral out of control, uh, things tend to go really bad for other people. Usually innocent people who have nothing to do with their life have never even heard of this person ends up getting hurt because their life is spiraling out of control. And that's kind of what happened. So let's move on to what put Ferion Wardrip in this particular podcast. So on the evening of December 21st, 1984, Terry Sims, who was 20 years old, and was a part-time EKG specialist at Bethania Hospital in Wichita Falls and was actually attending college nearby. So as you recall, Ferion was working at this hospital and had worked at this hospital for a year. So this was somebody that was within his circle there that he had probably met a few times, you know, maybe did some type of work with, or at least worked close by with her. So she was working in the same hospital that Ferion had, was working in or had been working in. And on that evening of December 21st, she rode with a coworker, Lisa Boone, to a friend's house to exchange Christmas gifts. Afterward, Terry and Lisa Uh, went to Lisa's apartment on Bell Street so they could study together for finals the next day because they were both in college. So, you know, pretty typical, innocent thing. You know, went, exchanged Christmas gifts, go to study for finals. But while they were studying, Lisa was called back to the hospital And this was around midnight. It was unexpectedly, but she got a call asking her to come back in. And she left her apartment about 1230 to go back to work. And Terry was still there. She had let Terry stay in her apartment since Terry had rode with her. And she was just going into work. She would be back in a little bit. The next morning, she returned around 730 and wasn't able to get into her apartment because she left her key with Terry. So in case Terry needed to go somewhere or something, she could leave and come back. But she couldn't get in, and Terry wasn't answering the door. So Lisa goes and gets her landlord to help her open her door because, you know, she can't get into her home. And when they opened the door, they found the house ransacked, and Terry laying on the floor of the bathroom in a pool of blood. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. So what seems to have come about, what was figured out uh, by later reports was that Terry had heard a scene outside of the apartments, had heard some man making a scene outside of the apartments 
And so she went outside to investigate, to figure out what in the world is going on out there. And this is where she comes across Wardrip's path. And he lunges at Terry, so she runs back into the apartment because, you know, this man is making a scene out here, and now he's lunging at her like he's going to attack her. So she runs back into the apartment, and he has now targeted her. He watches her run into the apartment, and a few minutes later, he bursts into the apartment that Terry had run into, Lisa's apartment, and overcomes her easily. She, he was six foot, six inches, weighed over 200 pounds, and she was only five foot three and only weighed 94 pounds. So she's this tiny little girl, and he is a big man, and he easily overpowered her. She was bound by her hands with electrical tape before assaulting, before the assault, and police believe that she actually lived for several minutes after she was assaulted, after she was stabbed, and laid there and bled out and died on the floor. They were able to preserve DNA samples, but they couldn't use them at that time, but they did store them and were able to use those later. So this was in 1984, December 1984, and January 19th, 1985, so just not even a month later, Tony Gibbs, who was 23, she was a registered nurse at Wichita General Hospital, and she was about five feet one inches, 94 pounds, very small woman. She saw Wardrip around six o'clock in the morning uh, well, after he'd been out walking all night. She recognized him because she had worked with him at one point, and so she offered him a ride. Two days after she offered him a ride, so January 21st, 1985, so exactly one month after the assault on Terry, Tony's car was found. So exactly one month after the assault on Terry, Tony's car was found. And about, you know, just a few miles from the hospital, a couple miles from the hospital, and only one mile from Wardrip's home. So she was leaving her shift. She picks him up at the hospital. Her car is found between the hospital and Wardrip's home. So at some point she had been abducted by him while driving. On February 15th, so almost a month after she was abducted and she disappeared, utility workers found her naked body just over the Wichita County lines in Archer County. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed eight times. In March of 1985, Deborah Taylor, who was 24, was at a bar with her husband on East Lancaster Street in Fort Worth. So we're no longer in Wichita Falls, we're in Fort Worth, which is nearby. 
It was the early morning hours and Deborah's husband decided to leave. But Deborah wanted to keep dancing, keep having a good time. And so she stayed behind at the bar while her husband left. Wardrip had traveled to Fort Worth telling people that he was looking for a job and so because he had left his job two months before that so this was shortly after losing his job he was looking for a job said that he was going to Fort Worth to look for a job and he entered the bar in the early morning hours of March 24th where he danced with Deborah and spent a couple of hours with her at the bar and then he asked Deborah asked to drive Deborah home because remember her husband had left so after spending this time dancing with her giving her drinks hanging out with her he leaves the bar with her and once they get outside the bar he makes sexual advances toward Deborah and she refuses remember she was married and she had been drinking all night so she probably you know was a little flirtier than she normally would be but she did tell him no she was married wardrobe got angry about this and so her body was found two days later on march 29th 1985 by construction workers at a construction site east of fort worth she had been reported missing by her husband when she didn't return home from the bar, but he was actually the main suspect in her murder when she was found. He stated that even his own family turned against him. Everybody thought that he had left the bar without her, had gone back to the bar and picked her up that morning probably hearing about her you know flirting with the wardrobe and spending this time with wardrobe and possibly in a jealous rage killed his wife while he had nothing to do with that it wasn't until wardrobe actually confessed to her murder that he was let off the hook for this and his family believed that no he did not murder his wife ellen blow was 21 on September 1985 when she was abducted in Wichita Falls she was a college student she worked as a waitress and she was actually leaving her shift at work and walking to her car when she went missing she was found her body was found in a secluded area on October 10th so it was a few weeks later and the body was in a bad state of decomposition they weren't able to tell if she was sexually assaulted but her underwear was pulled down ellen's case was in a an episode of cold case files and in that episode it was stated that her neck was broke but her official cause of death is actually strangulation so that was September 1985. And then in May 1986, Tina Kim Brew, who was also 21 years old at the time, so he really had this thing for younger women, 
she was a waitress and she had gotten to know Wardrip. She had, I guess, chatted him up at her job. She was familiar with him. On May 6, 1986, he went to her house and suffocated her with a pillowcase. He later said this was because she reminded him of his ex-wife. Neighbors were able to give a description of a white man in a baseball cap leaving the apartment complex before her body was found. So they had seen somebody that they didn't recognize leaving that area where her apartment was at, but nobody was able to identify him. However, on May 9th, so just three days later, Wardrip called the police from Galveston, Texas and threatened to kill himself. So he made these threats to get the police to come to him. And when the police got to him, he confessed to killing Tina Kimbrew. He was sentenced to 35 years in prison for this murder and he was paroled in December 1997. When he was paroled, because the only murder that he was convicted of convicted of at that time was Tina's. So when he was paroled, he moved to Olney, Texas, where he got a job at a screen door factory. He remarried and was set to be an upstanding citizen. He had finally got his shit together and was finally you know, living the life that you would expect from somebody who came from a decent upraising, no abuse, no, no neglect, had been in the armed forces, things like that. He seemed to just be going along and had everything together. In 1999, back in Wichita Falls, Detective John Little was looking at cold cases and he started investigating the deaths of Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs, and Ellen Blow. DNA, because remember they found, they got DNA, but they weren't able to use it at the time that they got it, but they kept it and they were able to find by DNA that Terry and Tony were killed by the same person. So they knew that they were looking for the same person in these two. Later, a link between Wardrop and Ellen was discovered. So they were able to figure out that he had actually known Ellen. There was a link there. And when he was on trial for the murder of Tina Kimbrew, he had actually admitted to knowing Ellen Blow. But this lead wasn't pursued at that time. Nobody looked into this and looked at, okay, he's, he's on trial for murder of one woman, and he's saying he knows another woman who has been murdered and is a cold case. Maybe we should look into this. But that connection was made, and later it was pursued because of that. After making this connection, 
they were able to find connections between Wardrip and Tony Gibbs because they both had worked at the same hospital. They found that Ellen and Terry lived within three blocks of each other. So now they're putting together some pieces and they're finding, okay, Wardrip, you know, was connected to Ellen and he had this connection to Tony and Terry only lived a few blocks from Ellen. So that doesn't necessarily connect her to Wardrip, but puts him in the vicinity of where she lived at the time that she was murdered. With these connections, all they needed was his DNA to actually put the final nail in the coffin. But, you know, getting him to voluntarily give his DNA that was going to connect him to these murders might be a little bit tricky, but the detectives were a little trickier. Detective Little actually approached Wardrip during a coffee break at the factory. He asked for a paper cup, for the paper cup that Wardrip was drinking out of. So Wardrip, you know, was drinking his coffee on his coffee break and this detective walks up and asks him if he can have the paper cup so he can spit tobacco in it. You know, it wasn't so I can get your DNA. It was, I need something to spit tobacco in. You've got to use paper cup. Can I have that to do this? So, Wardrip gave him the paper cup. This paper cup had the DNA that they needed. And so he was able to be convicted for the murders of Terry, Tony, and Ellen because of that paper cup that he gave at the detective to spit tobacco in. While he was in custody, he confessed to the murders of Terry, Tony, Ellen, and also Deborah Taylor. And you know, you remember that Deborah's husband was actually a murder suspect. His family believed that he had murdered his wife. And now, you know, we're all the way into 1999 when he finally confesses that he's the one who killed Deborah Taylor. And the story comes out and now the husband is no longer a murder suspect and the family believes that okay, he didn't actually kill him. But can you imagine your whole family, everybody looking at you and thinking that you had murdered your wife, they just don't have the evidence to convict you when you had nothing to do with it? You were at home sleeping at that time? I mean, that would be pretty sucky. Wardrop was sentenced to death for these murders and has been on death roll since 1999. He's setting the record for the longest inmate on death row. The reason that he's still on death row and hasn't been, his sentence hasn't been carried out is because he continues to appeal his sentence. His last appeal was denied in January of 2022. And in this appeal, he had asked for the Supreme Court for a new hearing claiming his attorney had been ineffective. This was denied and now it goes back to the federal district courts for an appeal based on his good conduct in jail. So we'll see how that one plays out.
Because this is the story of the Wichita body snatcher. Ferion Edward Wardrip. Never heard of him, but now we have. I hope you have a great summer. And until next time, bye.